Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reformed here. Um, we are dismissing our children for Children's Church. They're going to be going and learning about similar themes, and we'll be aiming at a, at a level for them, helping to hopefully, ultimately, bring them into the worship service where they can participate more fully. We're moving through a book of the Bible, uh, the letter of James to the dispersed church. The beginning of the book tells us that uh, James uh, is writing to church that is dispersed outside of Jerusalem. Church history tells us uh, that most likely the author of this book is James, the brother of Jesus, um, and uh, that he became a, an important leader early in the early church, uh, staying in Jerusalem, but he wrote this letter to those who had gone out, those Jewish Christians who had either been forced out of the city by persecution or perhaps had already come to faith living far outside the Jewish homeland. Uh, so the book has many very uh, strong connections to the Old Testament and to the teaching of Jesus. Um, and uh, perhaps most notably, it's very practical. We speak of the book as wisdom for life from the book of James. James has a way of getting into matters that are really everyday concerns for all of us. And as such, he has a habit of getting into our business a little bit in ways that can make us somewhat uncomfortable. The passage we're looking at today is a passage that deals with one of the most practical of all matters, money. In particular, how it affects our relationships with other people. So we'll read this together, we'll all squirm just a little bit at various points in time, and we'll pray that God uses this to shape and to change us and to renew our vision for his work in the world. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world, to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I said, this can be somewhat uncomfortable. James is talking about something that we like to think of as a more private matter, our finances. And to add insult to injury, perhaps, he's, he's even going deeper and, and challenging us on the way our view of finances impacts our relationships with other people. If you uh, can imagine some of the ways in which this is challenging, if you were at a uh, dinner party with people and someone who was sitting next to you making small talk, uh, uh, got through topics of the weather and the Pittsburgh sports teams, and they turn to you and say, how much money do you make? You would think that was an uncomfortable question, inappropriate probing. But James not only probes, but he goes one more still. He challenges to think about the ways in which we view money 
in its relationship to other people. It's uncomfortable for us for a couple of reasons. There's a couple of characters in this passage. He tells us a story, a very practical story, about two people that enter a service. It would appear to be a church service. Some scholars have thought maybe it's a more formal gathering of a church court, but most often this is thought of as simply a worship service. Two very people, different, uh, two very different people enter and they're treated differently. And some of us coming here today uh, uh, can be challenged because we think, you know, they talk about entering a, a gathering of Christians and not feeling welcome. I feel that way a lot of times. I feel like I don't quite fit for various reasons, and maybe some of them are socioeconomic. So we see ourselves in the passage in a way that's uncomfortable. Or perhaps some of us come in and we think, you know what, whenever I go to into a service, People identify me as someone that they want to get something from. And we find ourselves in the passage a little bit there. Maybe all of us can relate to both of those in different ways and in different settings, but James is primarily pressing us to think of ourselves in a position where two people enter and we make judgments of them based on outward appearances, based, I would think, on what we believe that person can offer us. James tells us in the passage that our judgments and our distinctions are an improper partiality. That we have begun to think of people not in terms of how they relate to God, but how they relate to the world. The passage right before this is a passage that talks about worldliness. And I think what James is doing here is he moves from one verse to another. He warns us not to be stained by the world. He's warning us that one of the primary ways we can be stained by the world is to view people in a church setting based on the criteria of what they will do to benefit us in a, in a worldly setting, so to speak. Will they help us get what we want or what we think we need? Well, like I said, this can be a bit challenging, but James doesn't pull any punches. He pushes strongly. And I think the reason that he does that is he realizes how dangerous this issue is for bringing divisions into the church. Some of you have been with us for a while. Remember that we had a ministry assistant years ago named Sean Honey. And Sean would sometimes say something that kind of caught on, so I still credit him for it. Uh, He didn't make this up. But he would say, you know, there's really three distinctions that threaten to divide every congregation. One is racial and ethnic division. We're not intentional. We find ourselves divided by the same sort of worldly categories that affect the world around us. The second is generational. And that is, if we're not careful, we end up associating with people that are very much like us generationally. We have an old church or a young church or everyone's sort of in the same demographic. Um, But the third is economic this is very much a reality of many of the things we do in life, isn't it? The, the places where we associate voluntarily or even involuntarily are often marked by economic stratification. It's an uncomfortable reality. But James would tell us if we don't talk about it, the default is it will happen. So difficult as it may be, uncomfortable as it may be to bring up some of these issues and to think about them, James presses right on and he pulls back no punches. Because unless we think through these things, they will be the default for us. The story he tells is of two people entering a service and being treated differently. 
And, you know, I think what's so interesting about the story is sort of the subtlety of it all. I think we could assume that the characters involved, those in the congregation who invite you know, have two people joining them and they treat them very differently, it's pretty likely they didn't wake up on Sunday morning and say, you know what, today I want to go to church and judge people based on their outward appearances. Today I'm going to go to church and try and create a setting where uh, we, we only attract the economically successful. But this is the default. This is the way worldliness impacts us and affects us. This is the, the air that we breathe and the systems that we move in. We don't have to think about it. It will simply happen. If we want to live differently, James says, we need to rethink and approach this differently. I want to look at three things as we move through the passage today. Uh, first of all, we'll talk about the dangers of partiality and worldliness. Secondly, we'll see the ways in which James challenges us to rethink the value of people. And third, we'll look at and consider practical ways we can seek to live differently in the midst of a, an environment that encourages us to think in ways that are partial and judgmental even. So first of all, the dangers of worldliness and partiality. Verse 1, James warns us not to show partiality. And he tells this story. He says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing came into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? As I mentioned before, I think what sort of the masterpiece of this story, or what makes it so powerful, is the subtlety of it. There have been times in church history where the church has been anything but subtle about its divisions. If you were to go back a little bit in church history, you would find that there were times where many churches raised money by having special seats that were sold for a pew tax. You can go to parts of New England where I was in seminary and you would see some of these old buildings that for many years had special seats that you would buy. I mean, you talk about, we sometimes joke about people being familiar with the congregation and they kind of have their seat, right? You know, what are you doing? You're in my seat, you newcomer. Please be welcome and leave my seat. Well, that, that's, a, that's something that Christians will you know, sort of chuckle about. We have patterns of sitting in similar places. But there were times in church history where people actually had their name on a seat. And you couldn't get in. And if you didn't pay your pew tax, you couldn't get in and sit in your seat. Right? This is a very ruthless way to raise money. One commentator I, I was reading referenced the fact that in his own congregation, this had been a practice in their historic past. But I think what makes this story so powerful is the subtlety of it. Because it's not that overt. It's the favoring of one in the passage based on the outward appearance, based on what they will do for us, based on their financial status. And we might be tempted, if we're honest, to say, Isn't, is this really a big deal? Is this something that James should, should, should make such a big uh, a comment about? He actually says, you've made a distinction that makes you a judge with evil thoughts. Isn't that perhaps a little bit over the top? Well, I think James is showing us here the connection between these distinctions and stains of worldliness. 
If you look on your uh, little insert that you have, I included an additional scripture from last week. I didn't have it in the bulletin. But in, in James chapter 1, verse 27, the very, very immediate verse before this, James talks about our calling to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think James is pressing hard here because he knows unless we think carefully about it, we'll find that this is all too easy to do. Isn't it true that in many of the places you work in, you are subtly shaped to think of people based on the value they will bring? In your work, don't you find yourself being shaped to make certain value statements about people? Encouraged to think that way. Many of the systems and structures around us that we've lived in from our very earliest days have shown us that some people are more valuable than others based on their status and their economic success. I think back even to the the sort of subtle ways in which this was shaping me and others in middle school, grade school, high school. Isn't it true that the kids with the coolest sneakers and the best lunch boxes were the people everyone wanted to sit by? You didn't wake up in the morning thinking that's what you wanted to do. That was the system you entered into. This is the stain of worldliness. James warns us we must think about it. Before we move on, let me just point out, I think there are two ways we can sort of think wrong or miss the point of the passage. The first is uh, dismissing people, dishonoring someone because they don't have the resources we think are important to have. But the second, and perhaps is dangerous for us as well, is to miss the significance and the challenges that come from poverty. As people who are generally in a more affluent society, we can miss some of the sting that comes in this passage. To be poor is not just a social status, but it often means uh, uh, very difficult challenges. Those of us know, some of us know what it's like to have mornings where we wake up not sure whether we'll have enough food. There is a degrading nature that can come with more extreme forms of poverty Uh, PCA pastor Randy Neighbors, who grew up in the housing projects of Newark, New Jersey, wrote an introduction to his book, Merciful, talking about the difficult challenges and the insulting nature of the poverty he knew growing up with. He begins his book by writing, let me share a truth I've learned firsthand. Poverty is insulting. Poverty insults you with the reminder you don't have enough to eat, your clothes are inadequate, and your teeth won't be cleaned, filled, pooled, or fixed as needed. Poverty mocks you with the disappointing realization that there are places you can't go, events you can't experience, and things you can't have. Poverty afflicts you with the realization that corruption sometimes steals even the little bit that you have. James is concerned here because... Those in the church have the dishonoring of social status added on top of the affliction and the insults of an already difficult life. Well, what do we do about it? First of all, James wants us to think differently. The second point we'll look at today, the second broader category here, is that James is challenging how we think about these types of things. How do we think about people? James knows that uh, if we don't think about these categories, the default will often apply. And so he begins in verses 5 and 6 by challenging the way we might think 
about the value of people. Verse 5 and 6, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. What he's concerned with is a social dishonoring of a person who's already in very difficult circumstances. And the way that he gets people to think differently about it is to help them think about who we are, our identity, and our status in terms of God and his kingdom. His argument is this, has not God chosen the poor? Now, James is not saying here that all people are automatic, all poor people are automatically Christians and no one with money ever can become a Christian, but he's speaking a general truth. It's a truth found in many places in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the, uh, the church in Corinthians, uh, think about who you were when God called you. Additional scripture on page 7. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. He's saying a general truth here. There are some people that were, uh, had success in worldly standings, were of noble birth. But he says not many were powerful. Author and uh, pastor named Sam Albury, a British pastor, wrote in his commentary on James, we must not overstate the point, neither James or Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty seven is saying the church is only full of poor and weak, or that the wealth and influ- wealthy and influential are not worth trying to reach. But both of these authors are pointing to a clear pattern. It's not random. God is choosing and calling to himself in a particular way, and a striking feature of it is his propensity to do his work among the poor and lowly. The same pattern is very much in evidence today. Globally, the church is overwhelmingly poor. Many of the places where the gospel is advancing are actually the poorest. So what we see here is not James making an absolute statement, but he's saying this is what is generally true. Doesn't that change the way we think about people? If God is in fact calling those that the world would otherwise dismiss, doesn't that change the way we see them and the value that we understand them as having? Worldliness leads us to place too small a value on God's kingdom. But James wants us to see that as we gather in a worship setting that all of us, regardless of our circumstances, are rich in faith. That we are, by faith in Jesus, heirs of the kingdom When we refuse to see others in terms of those gospel realities, we've allowed ourselves to be shaped by the patterns of the world and not the pattern of the cross. But as James challenges us to rethink the value of people, he turns his attention also in in the other direction. If James criticizes the church for perhaps weighing these people on the scale and, and misunderstanding the weights and the values of each person... He criticizes them not only for undervaluing those that are poor, but overvaluing those that are rich. There's a curious thing about the passage in that James here chooses to emphasize in the ways in which rich people can be also oppressors. 
On the whole, the Bible tells us many things about poverty. Our poverty is the result of broad circumstances, sometimes personal choices, and often outside sources of oppression. But here, James chooses to take a particular focus. He focuses on the way in which wealth and resources can be corrupting. We'll notice that James doesn't say that all rich people are oppressors. After all, there's a rich man in the service who's coming to church, and Paul speaks of those with resources that are part of the congregation. But James sees here a propensity, a danger that comes with wealth and resources. Those resources can be a barrier to our faith. They can cause us to live as if we don't need God. Often the very contours of the gospel are easiest to understand when we're in a position of need. As we sang earlier in one of our songs today, uh, we we were singing, uh, Come Ye Sinners. In the bottom of page three, I was struck by the words, Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. The offer of the gospel says that nothing you bring can buy salvation from God. When you have nothing to offer, the gospel makes a lot of sense. But when we're used to buying everything that we think we can need, there are barriers that we have to faith. Jesus, in Matthew 19, said to his disciples, to their great surprise, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter through the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. If you saw salvation as something you earn, this would be a complete surprise. Because the more resources you have, the more ability you have to do good things, to do merit. But if salvation is fundamentally about an expression of our dependence, an acknowledgement of our need, then many of the things the world sees as great resources can actually be spiritual barriers. God promises the kingdom to those who love him When we have lots of other things to love, we may find obstacles to this true and sincere faith. It's this reason, I believe, that James chooses to press press his his analogy in the way that he does. He pushes it hard. We know in the broad range of things, all, all of the caveats, all of the disclaimers, all of the exceptions, and yet the point that he chooses to make is to say, you need to reorder your thinking if you're going to be living together in the ways that God wants you to do it. So what do we do practically? How do we begin to work this out? Let me list three things and, uh, and we'll draw to a close here. Now, first of all, very practically, I think uh, one of the ways in which we respond is by sharing, by giving what we have. One of the things we recognize in the passage is we think about our position Relative to the world, relative to the church in history, we are all, in many ways, extraordinarily well off. The Bible encourages us to radical generosity, to recognizing that all that we have, God has given us to steward. And as we seek to care for those around us in need, we are not only showing our value, the value we place in other people, but we're also saying to our wealth, our money, our resources, You're not my God, you're not my control, you're not the most important thing. It's one of the reasons that we choose to give during our worship service. 
As you'll notice, we're careful as a church not to try to manipulate or press you to, to give in a certain way. If I could be honest for a moment and say, it's kind of an awkward thing for a pastor to talk about money. There's certain stereotypes that we're always you know, trying to get you to give something to us. And at the end of the day, we all know my salary is paid by giving in the church. A little awkward. The point here that we want to make is that in our giving, we are able to say to our resources, you are not my salvation. And we're able to express to our brothers and sisters, I care for you. Tonight at our Thanksgiving meal, we're going to take an offering for the deacon's fund. I want to put that before you as an opportunity to give. 100% of the money that we use out of the deacon's fund is used to care for the material needs of those in our community and around us. It is all for reaching out to share for the people in our midst that have needs, those in our congregation that go through times of need, and those around us that need to be cared for, not only spiritually, but also in their physical needs. Secondly, I think it challenges us as a church to rethink our priorities. All of us can place ourselves uncomfortably in the middle of this story. And we can ask ourselves, do I engage with other people on Sunday, in my small group, or even in my work throughout the week in ways that are all too much like the characters in this story? Do I find myself being shaped by viewing the people around me in worldly terms. I think the most immediate application is financial, but I think we also recognize the many other ways we can be very worldly in our judgments. We find it easier to reach out to people that are like us, that are attractive, seem to be well put together. Do we place a value in the people we meet on their outward appearance? Or do we seek to find ways to live and to interact and to love that show the value that is inherent in all people made in God's image and redeemed through Christ. I would argue with you that it takes intentional work and thought. And as we think about the strategies of our church, if we're not careful, some of the same strategies that we use for the ministry can be shaped by the same thing. I'll just, again, I'll make this a little more personal one of the things that we've talked about as a church and even as a presbytery is that we recognize if we're not careful, our tendency is to invest in ministry that goes to people that have resources. Most strategies for church planning, for example, require a plan for a church to be self-sustained in a number of years. And if we're not intentional to do otherwise, we'll find that most of our church plants goes to places where it's pretty likely that people will have financial resources to support a ministry soon. Without realizing it, we're shaped by worldliness. If we're not intentional, we'll fall into patterns that go merely to the places that are familiar and to the people most likely to reward our efforts. And we may find ourselves doing the very thing that James warns us about here. Third and finally, let me encourage you that perhaps beneath it all, the thing that most challenges us to live differently is when we grasp and are animated by a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ and we allow that to shape us as we move outward. 
The very first verse of this passage is an intriguing one. We referenced it briefly, but I want to look at it in more detail. James says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Many scholars have been puzzled by this verse. It's a very interesting connection. Paul would compare partiality with a true faith that locates its hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What uh, some scholars think as they look at this in more detail is they think that what uh, James is reminding us about is that at the end of the day, the way in which we think about people around us has a lot to do with what we think about glory. Glory means heaviness, weightiness, significance. And when we treat people as being valuable or less valuable, we're showing something of the glory that we think they have. James introduces his whole passage by reminding us of our faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so we're invited to ask the question, how did Jesus show glory? In the beginning of the Gospel of John, John said, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. But how did we see the glory of Jesus? We saw the glory of Jesus as Jesus gave up his privileges, his position, and his power, and lowered himself in service to people like me and you. Many places in the Bible emphasize the humiliation of Jesus in coming to us both in the incarnation, his birth and life, and in giving himself in his death. Paul writes in in Philippians, oh, I think it's in here, maybe it's not, shoot, oh, it's the uh, call to worship, isn't it? Paul writes in Philippians, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of man, he humbled himself even to the point of death. How did Jesus show glory? Not by upward mobility, but by downward mobility. By turning away from the patterns of the world, choosing to associate with lowly and desperate people like me and you. And we saw the glory of the grace and the mercy of God poured out. How did we, receive, how did we see the glory of Jesus? 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty may become rich. On one level, he's talking about spiritual riches, but on another level, he's talking just about the plain fact that Jesus was poor. James knew this. He was his brother, assuming the correct tradition of church history. He grew up with Jesus in a In a hard-working family, Mary and Joseph were scraping by. When they went to the temple, they offered the sacrifice of poverty. If the wise man hadn't showed up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they never could have escaped to Egypt. Later in his life, Jesus spoke of himself as a homeless man with nowhere to lay his head. And at his death, the only thing of value he had was a robe. It's the glory of Jesus. When that picture begins to infect us, and it begins to captivate us, 
we can begin to be people who instead of moving in the patterns of the world towards upward mobility, begin to move in the patterns of the cross, downward mobility. I don't know what this means for each of you, but the, the focus of the passage really is about seeing people with honor that the world wouldn't honor. I'm shaped and impacted by the friends I know that do this well. I have a friend that I visit at work and I'm always struck by the fact as we walk down the hallways that he knows not only the professionals but also the blue collar workers and the janitors. He knows them by name and he cares for their stories. It's an honoring of those the world would easily dismiss. On Fridays I work with a a ministry at Bethany Baptist Church called the Master's Kitchen. It's a ministry our church has partnered with for years. One of the reasons it most impacted me when we started the visit 10 years ago was seeing the ways in which the volunteers from Bethany Baptist treated every visitor who walked in with dignity and honor. The homeless, addicts, people in desperate circumstances, as well as the elderly just looking for a good meal. The food was of the highest quality, but the people who entered were not just there to receive physical nourishment, but that efforts were made to engage with them and to show their value. We take opportunities to care for those around us that are disvalued by the world. We're actually saying something about the gospel. And I would urge you, friends, just to recognize that if you, if you don't do it intentionally, the patterns of the world will shape you and change you and affect you. The downstream movement, ever, everything around you, will lead you to this very place in which James warns us that we dishonor someone that God has honored. The flip side is also true. The potential holds before us that as we become increasingly individuals and a people that seek to honor those whom God is honoring, we are able to display something greater and glorious in the character of Christ. It's our hope and our prayer. Let's close.